0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market targeted oncology medicines that address unmet needs. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Doctors Howard Hoxter, Anise Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week it's a conversation about biostatistics in cancer with Dr. Stephen Ma. Dr. Ma is a professor of biostatistics at the Yale School of Public Health and director of the Yale Cancer Center Biostatistics Shared Resource. Dr. Hoxter is a professor of medicine and medical oncology and associate director for clinical sciences at Yale Cancer Center.
1: I personally have always regarded statistics as kind of one of the things that's made clinical medical research possible. I mean, there's just so much variation in how things come out. We need statisticians to help us decide if it's for real or just by chance. So, can you start out by telling us a little bit about how the what the role is of statistics in biomedical research today?
2: um I I think I completely agree with you. Um, I mean, especially for complex diseases like cancer. Uh, and maybe cardiovascular diseases, mental disorders. There are just way too many variations we need to somehow control. And we uh, need statistics to guide us to really understand what's going on under those diseases and what's uh, kind of the best prediction model. So uh, if we have a patient coming in, what we can tell the patient what's going to happen next and also to select the best treatment strategy So uh, pretty much in all stages of uh, research and treatment on those complex diseases, including cancer, we need statisticians to really tell us what's going on and what our strategy should be.
1: And so um, we work a lot with the Cancer Center Biostatistics Shared Resource to describe to develop clinical research and understand how to do the clinical trial so we get the right answer. I mean, for example, if I give somebody a treatment, they get better, and so I think it's from the treatment, but that's not always the case. They might have gotten better anyway, right? Right. So we need to design these trials with the right statistics to have confidence that what we observe is actually due to the treatment and not just random chance
2: right so um well you mentioned clinical trials and that's definitely one area where statistics and statisticians play a very critical role as you mentioned uh, we actually see a lot of variations in clinical uh, and observational studies so we really need statistics to identify what's the truth and what just happened by by chance or what's going to happen anyway. So uh, in statistics, we call those variables as confounders. So basically what we do is we need hardcore statistics to really separate those confounding effects from the treatment effects we are actually interested in. So uh, that's one actually one good example where statistics play a Important role in cancer and also other disease research.
1: So, I mean, when I want to test a new drug for the treatment of colon cancer, right. for example, which is right. what I do, I go to my statistician. Can you tell us like what the role is in this of a statistician in de- developing and designing the clinical trials? Then,
2: so uh, basically, we are—I mean, statisticians—we are involved in pretty much every single step of clinical research, uh, clinical trials. So, uh, the first thing we do is we sit down with uh, clinicians like you to really design the study. So, we need to identify the right population we want to target. And a very important task is to decide how many samples we need, so, how many patients we want to recruit, and whether it's uh, feasible to recruit based on, uh, for example, our hospital, or uh, we need multi center studies. And uh, also we need to work on the study recruitment plan, like uh, how long I want to keep the study uh, recruitment and at what so what kind of strategies we need. So uh, that's kind of the first step in the study design. And also when the study actually starts, uh, we also need to be involved. We need to make sure uh, all data are collected in an unbiased way. So basically, uh, there will be no human selection bias. And also we, uh, we we do a lot of interim analysis. So pretty much we keep an eye on the data, on the study uh, execution at every single minute. So we need to make sure there's no harm to the patients. And when uh, we can actually terminate the study either with a positive or a negative design. And finally, when the study ends, we need to uh, conduct unbiased analysis and rigor- rigorously justify if the treatment has any beneficial treatment effect.
1: So, uh, as you were saying, we we the first thing might be to decide on what the study is, is it just the treatment alone? Is it the treatment compared to a control arm or whatever? And that will help us determine the size. So the size could be 30 and it could be 3000, depending on what you are looking for. And then you talked about, you look at the data in what we call interim analysis to make sure that it's safe to continue the study. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Because sometimes we hear, oh, a study was stopped early because it was not positive, or sometimes the study's so positive that we don't need to finish it.
2: Right, so um, so before we start a trial, we have a hypothesis and usually the hypothesis is the new drug is going to uh, do no harm and actually going to be better than existing treatment. Uh, unfortunately, that hypothesis is not always true. So what kind of uh, make clinical trials interesting and also very complicated and very challenging as the subjects are actually human beings. Well, there are patients, they are like us, they're humans. So uh, we want well, it different from like animal studies. So uh, if we found somewhere in the middle of the study, the drug is not doing what we expect if the drug actually harm patients we actually need to stop the study before before the plan end and um, so uh, in the news uh, we sometimes see this kind of bad news Uh, those clinical trials got stopped early on usually because of bad effects uh, either um, there's no treatment, no treatment effects, or actually harmful effects. And another possibility is the drug is so good, uh, we, before the study ends, we have already accumulated enough evidence to give a positive conclusion. So in this case, we don't need to wait until the end of the study. We can terminate early, so, so this drug can potentially get approved early on and uh, benefit other patients early on.
1: So what when we to come up with a study like this, we kind of write out the whole program for the study in something called a protocol, a right. clinical trial protocol, and that's approved by our... Um, Local IRB, that's the people who tell us it's okay to do clinical research in human beings, human experimentation. And in that, they'll have this uh, you will pre specify we're going to do an interim analysis at some point. And what you're saying is that sometimes the interim analysis, most of the time, you're going to say go ahead and finish the study, but sometimes it's so good you can stop before you finish if the effect is maybe twice as much as one expected, or if it really is so. Ineffective, then you'll stop the trial right. early so more right. people don't have to be in the trial and get exposed to something that they don't need.
2: Right. Yes, that's true. Uh, I mean, usually we have the protocol saying uh, we're going to do this study for a certain time and we're going to recruit a certain number of patients. But uh, as we have just discussed, this does not have to be exactly what's going to happen. So uh, we can, actually conduct those interim analysis and terminate the study, either making a very positive conclusion or making a negative conclusion. So it can actually go both ways and it can happen before the planned end of the study.
1: Right, so that's very helpful and a way to protect our right. patients from being in yep. trials that that aren't going to give us a positive answer right. or if it already is very positive. So another area you're in you're in the school of public health. That means right. you look at like a lot of treat a lot of effects out there in normal people. Like there's another kind of completely different research that statisticians are involved in looking at at public health or populations looking right. for effects like you know, does coffee cause pancreatic right, right, right. cancer yeah. or something? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that kind of
2: work? So, um, I mean, we we have just discussed clinical trials, but honestly, if you look at what we do uh, every day, uh, we don't have that many clinical trials. Uh, I mean, uh, clinical trials are very expensive, not that common. Actually, we perhaps spend more time doing this kind of population research. So uh, we're not trying to test a specific new drug, rather we are trying to understand the health at a population level. So, as you mentioned, uh, something can be as common as like what kind of good or bad effects of coffee, or water, or uh, apple, or banana have on our health. So, uh, what we do is we conduct those observational studies. So we don't really conduct a clinical trial on the treatment effects of coffee. So uh, instead what we do is we collect data uh, retrospectively or prospectively. So basically we try to uh, c- collect information on what ordinary people like you and me do every day. And then we also try to collect data on our health conditions. So we're trying to identify the association or even better, causality effects between what we do every day and our health conditions.
1: And and so, like, how do you do that? I mean, I don't remember what I eat
2: so uh, I mean yesterday maybe, yeah. but
1: last week, yeah. forget it.
2: So uh, one way of doing study which uh, is actually cheaper is to do a retrospective study. So basically what we do is we uh, ask you to fill in questionnaires on questions like what you did yesterday or months ago. And as you mentioned, uh, if you have to recall from a long time ago, there's definitely, definitely a risk of uh, recall buyers so uh, another way which can be more accurate but yes says more expensive is to do a prospective study so uh, we recruit people like you and we ask you to keep track of uh, what you do tomorrow and the day after so basically you keep track of things like what you eat uh, how long you exercise Uh, uh, when you go to sleep, this kind of information. And uh, after a while, like a couple months or a couple weeks, we contact you again, we get our data back. So uh, this kind of prospective study is, um, as I mentioned, is more accurate, but it's definitely more time consuming and also more expensive.
1: And and there's some big studies out there of thousands, tens of thousands of people who have been in these longitudinal right, studies.
2: Right. Yes. So uh better uh kind of the best way is not to collect data cross-sectional data, rather to follow people for a long period of time. So uh, those studies have been organized mostly by government funding agencies like Uh, NIH, uh, NSF, or FDA, they follow a large cohort of people for a really long period, uh, years or even 10 years or even longer, and we have a lot of rich data and very interesting findings from those longitudinal studies.
1: Well, thank you very much for that interesting uh, description, Dr. Ma. We're gonna take a short break for a medical minute Please stay tuned to learn more information about biostatistics and cancer with
0: Dr. Stephen Ma. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca. Committed to providing targeted cancer medicines for patients. When it comes to cancer treatment, one size does not fit all. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
1: Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Howard Hockster, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Stephen Ma, and we're discussing biostatistics and cancer. So we were just talking about population-based right. observation studies. You said they're funded by government agencies, right. and they may involve tens of thousands of patients right. for many years. Right. And so that, that really gives you a lot of data to work with.
2: Right, so um, actually a lot of important findings came from those large studies. So uh, one example which is uh, actually not very far from here, not very far from you, is a Freeheim study. Uh, it has been going on for I think 70 or 80 years and it's, uh, it's funded, completely funded by the U.S. government and it has been collecting data on um, I think maybe over 10,000, Subjects for uh, over 80 years, and a lot of uh, cardiovascular study findings actually came from that study.
1: Right, the Framingham study. Right. So, um, but you know, we a lot of times when we hear in the press about, you know, something's good for you, something's bad for you, it comes out of these studies, but it seems like it changes all the time. Like for a while, they were telling everybody to eat more fiber to prevent colon cancer. And right. then it was like, well, that didn't really work. So how how do they come to these conclusions? And what are some of the problems in, in coming up with the right conclusions?
2: So uh – Fortunately and unfortunately, uh, statisticians have been involved in all those studies, and uh, a lot of those findings actually came from statistical analysis. Uh, A problem with those observational study or population-based study is uh, those studies were not conducted in a well-controlled. Environment, So it's not like clinical trials. In population-based studies, you cannot really select who you want to work with and uh, exactly what you do. So uh, basically those subjects, those people, they just keep doing whatever they have been doing. They eat in their common ways and they go to their jobs. So uh, it's not a controlled experiment. So that's why we have a lot a lot of variations in those studies. And a problem with statistical analysis and which can also explain why we have those kind of mistaken or at least uh, partial findings is this confounding effects. So uh, in statistical analysis, uh, pretty much what we can identify is association, not necessarily causation. So we may have uh, we may observe a association between fiber and colon cancer, but not n- this is not necessarily a causal effect. So what we really need to do is, in the first step, we need to identify those associations. So those associations can suggest possible targets. The next step is really to conduct more experiments, collect more data, and conduct more sophisticated analysis to really identify the causal effects. So that's what's kind of interesting and that's what we um, not just the statisticians but also medical researchers well, like yourself, what we need to do to really identify the causal effects.
1: So a good example might be smoking. I mean right. one of the questions for a long time was you know and people denied the fact that smoking caused cancer. but if you have a gr- population where people have cancer, that smoke, you can show there's an association, but unless you have a control group, it's hard to show what you call causality, and you can't really do a trial where you take people and randomly say, you smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, and you don't smoke cigarettes. You can't smoke. So we have to come up with these other kinds of ways of looking at it, which we usually call case control studies.
2: So, uh, well, there are actually a lot of things we can do. Uh, we can have different designs. Uh, we can be- better control confounding effects. So uh, just, uh, I mean, we, we can do better statistics to only focus on the fact of smoking, trying to remove other possible effects. Uh, for example, uh, if people are exposed to high level of pollution for a long time, uh, they also have a higher risk of getting cancer, uh, well, lung cancer. So what we need to do is we really need to control the effects of pollution when we analyze the effects of smoking. So we need better study design, we need better statistical analysis. And also, um, I mean, eventually, we need to really understand the biology. So uh, what kind of biological mechanisms make smoking contributing to lung cancer. So that's why we have a lot of colleagues uh, in medical school, in school of public health, they do genetic, genomic, proteomic studies trying to really understand the biology. So uh, that kind of study and that kind of research can really tell us uh, whether smoking causes lung cancer and more importantly how, so what underlying biology is.
1: So the this kind of public health research has gone from just looking at food or, you know, habits stuff and actually now looking at what's going on at the molecular level, kind of molecular epidemiology, so we can understand better what's happening to people with specific um, molecular changes.
2: Right. So um, that's actually uh, kind of the most exciting and the most important develop in the uh, development in the past 10, maybe 20 years, the area of genetic epidemiology. So in the past, we only look at epidemiology. So uh, we look at smoking, we look at lung cancer, but now we are really trying to add the genetic component. So it's not just epidemiology, it's genetics, it's genetic epidemiology. So we're trying to understand at a molecular level, why those risk factors can cause certain cancers.
1: I see, and to do that you need to get blood or tissue samples from people who are in studies.
2: Right, so uh, we need biopsy, Uh, we need samples from those patients. Uh, We may also need samples from healthy patients as a control and we try to understand their molecular differences. So uh, what kind of uh, genetic mutations we see in lung cancer patients, but we do not see in normal patients, and whether those kind of mutations are related to smoking or not.
1: And, and there's a lot of that kind of research going on today at Yale.
2: Yes, uh it's actually not just the it's uh, nationwide and it's also in other countries so uh the research of biomedicine of epi- epidemiology has uh, have definitely moved into this omics era so uh in pretty much all cancer research we now have a omics component
1: well that's that's really interesting and and, uh, and I want to focus on, move a little bit over to another topic that I know you're very involved with, and that's called bioinformatics. Right. So we've reached this big age of big data and being able to analyze lots of data and predict things that are going to happen. Most of us know that because of our Google searches, and then we get ads on our browsers all the time. But you actually use that kind of approach in understanding cancer today.
2: Right. So um, well, big more well, you mentioned big data, it's definitely one of the hottest areas right now. And in cancer research, in statistical research, we have also moved into this big data area. Uh, one example is biometrics. So what we do is we use uh, statistical and mathematical techniques trying to analyze uh, those omics data, trying to uh, really... Mine a big amount of data and really to identify what the causal uh, kind of mutations are for, for example, for lung cancer.
1: And and so, how, how does that bioinformatics work? I mean, we we use that today when we're doing like gene sequencing.
2: Right. So uh, what we do is uh, well, kind of the step zero is to really uh, get samples from patients the next step kind of step one is to uh, do profiling study like sequencing. sequence well you mentioned sequencing so do a sequencing study to really see what kind of uh, mutation profiles uh, patients have and the next step is to conduct statistical and mathematical analysis using uh, really complicated software to uh, really identify what kind of mutations may cause a higher risk for cancer, may cause poor prognosis, and may cause uh, bad response to treatment.
1: And so when people are doing these big data or bioinformatic analysis, how many calculations or numbers are they dealing with?
2: Uh, That's actually a huge number. So uh, if you look at the number of genes, we have over 20,000. So that's already a big number, but actually not too bad. But uh, if you look at sequencing data, if you look at mutation data, uh, we are dealing with millions of mutations. So uh, basically, we're trying to identify from those millions of mutations, one or a small number of really bad mutations, which may contribute to cancer. So uh, while I still remember a long time ago, we, we said it's really hard to find a needle from a haystack. But right now, if you think about it, it's actually not too bad. I mean, a needle actually looks different from a haystack. So what we're doing right now in those big data analysis in those muta- in the analysis of a mutation data we're trying to identify one or small number of uh very special hay from a big haystack. So that's uh, actually much more challenging.
1: Uh-huh. The needle is easier to find. Yeah, definitely. Than a specific piece of hay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh um and and this is really pretty much uh, common now in every kind of molecular analysis. They they look at proteins, uh, RNA, DNA, whatever, and kind of analyze um, uh, millions of uh, pieces of data to find out which things are more prevalent and which are less prevalent.
2: Right. So uh, what's really interesting about uh, this omics research on cancer and also other types of complex diseases is if you look at those DNA level changes, r mRNAs, uh, proteins, uh, all of them are very noisy. And you have a large number of measurements. And what's more interesting and also more complicated is all of those l- different levels of changes are actually interconnected. So kind of the first step is to really understand, for example, how DNA level changes affect mRNAs and how mRNAs regulate proteins. So to really understand biology. And the second step, the next step, is to really understand how those molecular changes, how they contribute to cancer.
1: And. Are, are the is this all being done like uh, using you know bigger and faster computers is that what the basic thing is to to be able to do this kind of research
2: um actually yes I mean just uh, imagine uh, how large those data are and how complex the relationships are so uh, we right now our research definitely involves a lot of... Uh, computer uh, and programming and new hardware, new software. So uh, sometimes I feel I sit in front of a computer longer than a programmer. So I feel uh, sometimes I feel my job is more and more like a computer scientist. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: And um, where do you see the field going in the, in the near future? What's
2: going to be happening with this area, area of bioinformatics? So uh, I think in the past decades, we have collected enough data, and finally, we're at the point of being able to actually understand cancer from a more fundamental level. Uh, I'm a optimistic person, and I think in the next couple of years, maybe five, maybe 10 years, uh, finally, we're going to have good, those omics models to really predict uh, what's going to happen to healthy people and uh, what's going to happen to cancer patients. And at some point, those omics findings, those bioinformatics findings will guide us to really discover new and effective drugs to finally treat cancer.
0: Dr. Stephen Ma is a professor of biostatistics at the Yale School of Public Health and director of the Yale Cancer Center Biostatistics Shared Resource. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.